Some of you may be too young to remember the Billy Mays commercials um, and that he really was the product pitch man for a long time. That if there was some new product out there that he was going to be on it, he was going to be the one uh, kind of pitching it to you and making you uh, really want to buy that product, whether it was through commercials or infomercials or the Home Shopping Network. And Some of you remember him very well and some of you may not, but um, for you guys that remember him, uh, there are two things that I remember that stand out to me about his commercials. The first one was his excitement about the product that he was pitching. It didn't matter uh, what the product was, whether it was a tie with a, a hidden compartment for your credit cards or OxyClean or the, the Ultimate Chopper or the Dent King or Zorbies or all these other things that he advertised. He always had a, ma always had a way of making it sound like it was the greatest product ever that even if you never even thought you needed a dent king because you bought just bought a brand new car and, and you didn't have any dents on it like he made it sound so great that you suddenly thought you needed a dent king whether you did or not if you didn't have any problem with stains in your laundry then the way billy mays talked about it like you really did need oxyclean whether you thought you needed it or not like he was just so excited that he was going to make you want this product that, that you just couldn't live without this product and so that was the first thing i remember about him was that his just his energy and his passion for these products that he was pitching the other thing i remember is kind of the end of his commercials that almost every one of his commercials kind of ended the same way there was always these but wait there's more moments kind of at the end of it that like um if you called right now or if you ordered right now, there was kind of this bonus incentive, the, these extra things that you're going to get. For example, the one you just saw, like you could get a one pound or a two pound bucket of OxyClean and usually it was $40. But today, if you called right now, they would, they would shorten or they would give you more OxyClean for less money. So then you could get two buckets for like $19.95 plus shipping and handling and all that extra stuff that they charge you on the side. But he, he added this stuff in to really kind of sweeten the deal of these things. And, and so, but there wasn't just the additional OxyClean you got. Almost every one of his commercials, there was this, but wait, you get the OxyClean, but you get something else too. And so in this one, there was the squirt bottle and the ShamWow and the, um, or the, the squeegee rag, whatever it was. And then there was the, the, the orange boom or the orange uh, cleaner. You got this, all this extra stuff, all this um, extra bonus material that came with what you originally thought you were getting. So you may have just been interested in the OxyClean, but when you called and ordered right then, you didn't just get OxyClean. You got all this extra stuff to go along with. There were all these companion products that came with your OxyClean, but, but you had to do it. You had to call right now. And it was his way of kind of sweetening the deal to make it even more irresistible to you that, yeah, you, you really wanted OxyClean, but all of a sudden when there's there's a squeegee bottle or a squirt bottle thrown in with it, man, suddenly that that's so irresistible. You don't even need the squirt bottle, but just because it's there, you're going to take it and, and you're going to pick that phone up and you're going to call or you're going to, however it was that we ordered back in those days, back before Amazon Prime was all over the place, you could call and, and order those things. But in Proverbs chapter 8, Solomon kind of uh, has this same kind of mentality when he presents wisdom to us. That, that Throughout the, the book of Proverbs so far, we've been talking and made our way to chapter 8. We're going to go back next week and pick up a, a section in chapter 4 uh, that I've been holding off on until we were in person. Uh, but we, we've been kind of in, in uh, working through this idea of wisdom and, and what wisdom has and, and what wisdom is. And, and now we get to this kind of, but wait, there's more. 
Because as enticing as wisdom has been for us so far, as enticing as, as Solomon has presented wisdom, we're going to find out today in chapter 8, it comes with these companions. There are things that go hand in hand with wisdom that if we'll get wisdom, we'll get this extra stuff, this bonus material as well. And so we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 8 today. We're going to start in verse 12 uh, and read down through verse 21. And then we're going to skip down to verse 35 and verse 36. But uh, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 12 starts like this. It says, I, wisdom, share a home with shrewdness, and I have knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. He goes on in verse 14 to say, I possess good advice and competence. I have knowledge and strength. Verse 15, it is by me that kings reign and rulers enact just laws. By me, princes lead, and do, as do nobles and all righteous judges. I love those who love me, and those who search for me find me. For me, or excuse me, with me are riches and honor, lasting wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than solid gold, and my harvest better than pure silver. I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice. Verse 21, giving wealth as an inheritance to those who love me and filling up their treasuries. And then we're going to skip down to verse 35 and verse 36, the last two verses of the chapter. Verse 35 says, For the one who finds me finds life and obtains favor with the Lord. And finally, verse 36 says, But the one who misses me harms themselves. All who hate me love death. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for, uh, God, all you have done for us, even in these moments, God, that uh, we do believe that right now you are doing something. Uh, God, that right now you are, are making a way when folks can't see a way, God, that right now you are uh, saving people around this world, maybe even watching this, this, uh, this sermon right now. God, that you are offering salvation. And I pray, God, that when you offer salvation, that we won't turn our backs to you. God, I pray this morning that through our work and through our study of your word, God, that we will learn to love you and to fear you. And God, we will learn even more to hate and despise evil. And so, God, I pray that you speak to us through your text this morning. God, I pray that the words of this page don't just uh, ring in our ears, but God, they sink into our heart and they make a difference in our life. God, I pray this morning that we are seeking after wisdom with all that we are and all that we have, God, because wisdom will transform us into who you desire for us to be. And so, God, I pray that uh, whether we've been distracted so far or not, God, that in this moment we will give our attention to you. God, in this moment we will listen to the words that you have for us, not just with our ears, but with our heart and with our soul and with our mind and everything that we are, because that's what you deserve, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. A couple years ago, uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education did a survey, and it was kind of a, a self-reflective survey of how well colleges and universities were preparing students for the real world. And uh, so what they did was they surveyed a number of uh, seniors who were getting ready to graduate. They, number, they surveyed several employers who had just um, hired new graduates and people who had graduated in the past year or so. And they wanted to kind of see, um, were we as universities, were we as colleges doing our job of preparing folks to go into the real world and doing uh, what we had trained them to do? 
And so when they did that, they, they surveyed these two groups and they, they found some kind of interesting statistics. Let me share a couple of them with you. One thing they found was that when they surveyed the seniors, they found that 93% of them believe that their knowledge, the things they'd spent years studying, uh, 93% of them believed that their knowledge and what they had read about had prepared them for their future career. Now that's pretty good, that only 7% said, ah, this wasn't worth it, but 93% felt like, yeah, this prepared me for my future career. But here's another number they found, this one's a little more interesting, they found that only 53%, 53% of seniors believed that they were equipped to apply their knowledge to a real world setting, right? Did you get that? That only 53% of seniors who were getting there to graduate thought that, that all the time they'd spent studying, all the money they'd spent in tuition and, and housing and all that, that only 53% of them felt like they had the, the ability to take what they learned here and to apply it over here. That what they were doing in the classroom and reading about in the classroom, they knew how to fit that in to what they were going to do in their future career in a real-world setting. And it meant that only 53% of them thought that they could put what they had learned into practice when they got out into the real world, which is kind of an alarming thing when you think that you spent a whole lot of money on college and you spent a whole lot of time studying these things and the fact that only 53% of these students felt like, yeah, I can take what I learned and I can apply it somewhere else besides sitting in a classroom. Probably even worse than that statistic was the number they got when they interviewed and they surveyed the employers. Because when they surveyed the employers, what they found was that of the employers they surveyed, they said that less than 25% of the employers felt that college graduates were well prepared to apply their knowledge to real world settings. Did you hear that? Less than 25% of the people who were hiring said, yeah, these people who have spent all these years in training and all this discipline and all this uh, money investing in college, less than 25% of them said, yeah, they can take what they've learned here and put it in practice over here. That they can actually apply what they've learned to a situation and to the real world and to the job that we're hiring for. And so the, the person who wrote this article kind of said that, that this, these statistics and these numbers kind of alarmed him quite a bit. It kind of let him know that maybe we're not doing a great job of connecting what we're teaching our students to what they are actually going to be doing. You know, we're teaching them and they're learning and they're getting good grades, but there's this disconnect between what they're learning and what they're going to be doing in the future. And he went on and he said there's a big difference between absorbing information that was learned through classes, readings, and experience and putting that information and learning into practice. He says without the latter, without putting it into practice, the knowledge and training that students has received has really been a waste. Now that's somebody who works in the university setting and he's saying that without being able to put it into practice, you've wasted all this time and all this energy and all this training. And, and unfortunately, there's this big disconnect between what they've learned in college and what their ability to put that into practice in a meaningful way. And, and what they were basically saying was that, that what they learned in classroom settings had no application to their real life. Yeah, they were going to do their, what they had to do. They were going to read what they had to read. They were going to check the, the boxes they need to check. They were going to do their studies. But then they were going to leave all that behind. And when they got in the real world, it wasn't going to make a difference for them. It wasn't going to impact anything that they were doing. And unfortunately, this disconnect doesn't just stop when folks are finished with college because in a separate article, 
by Forbes magazine, they found a, a pretty interesting number and they gave a pretty interesting statistic there. They said that as much as 80% of the dollars that are spent on employee training and continuing education every year is wasted. Up to 80% of it is wasted because the training made no practical difference for the workers. Right? So, so many of you have to go to these special classes where you have to go to continuing education, you have to go to training, you have to do all this stuff. Many of you are in those kind of fields where you've got to keep going to classes. And, and what they found is that 80% of the amount of money that was spent to train you and to send you to those classes, 80% of that money every year was wasted because there wasn't a difference between what happened before the class and what happened after the class. There, there was no implementation of a new skill. There was no implementation of the new information that 80% of the time there was no difference in the way that the employee thought the way they acted or the way they performed. That 80% of the time the employee didn't think different, didn't act different, and didn't perform different after the training than they did before the training. All this money that was spent in training that you sat through and all this time you sat through didn't have any effect whatsoever on the person's decision making or the actions or their behavior in any way whatsoever. That's a, those are some kind of sobering statistics, and there's a reason for that. There's a reason there's such this disconnect between the, the college classroom and the real world. There's a reason there's such a disconnect between setting in a, a continuing education or a training classroom and then going out and doing your job. There's a reason there's a disconnect between those two because we've approached those very differently in, in what we're approaching the Bible in. You see, what we've done in the classroom, and I can say this as a teacher, what we've done in a classroom in a college setting um, or a high school setting or any setting or as a teacher and, and continuing education, what we've done is we have said this is the information you need. This is the knowledge that you need. And we never distinguish between knowledge and wisdom but clearly there's a huge difference between these two. You see, one of the first ways that you know you have gained wisdom is because it comes with its very first companion. The first companion of wisdom is shrewdness. Right? And we're going to see that, that how do you know you've gotten wisdom versus just gotten knowledge? You're going to find that out through this passage. But shrewdness is the very first companion that always comes with knowledge. You see, as we start chapter 8, uh, wisdom is personified. Solomon writes as wisdom as if she is a person. In fact, kind of as she is a street preacher. She's out in the street and she's calling out. She's crying out to people. Kind of, We saw this kind of same personification back in chapter 2. But wisdom there and she's crying out to people. She's, she's saying, listen to my words. I want you to pay attention. I've got truth to share with you. I've got knowledge that you need. I've got information that you need. In fact, you need to listen to me because what I have to share with you is true and it is so valuable to you. It's so it's such an essential for you. In fact, a verse that we didn't read originally but is beautiful is verse 11. In Proverbs 8 verse 11, he says, For wisdom is better than precious stones, and nothing desirable can compare to it. Right? So, and you back that up a little more in verse 10, he says that it's better than pure gold or pure silver. And so we should listen to the words of wisdom because not only is our message true, but our message has so much value to it. More value than pure silver, more value than pure gold, more valuable than these precious stones or jewels, more valuable than any Anything else that you could desire, wisdom is so much more valuable than those things. 
So think of all the things that we as a society put as valuable, things that you would invest in, things that you would get a financial thing. Wisdom is far above and beyond all of those things. You see, but the goal of wisdom is never just information. It is always transformation. That's where we find this idea because our first companion is shrewdness. It's something she always has with her. The goal is not just to give you truth. It is to allow truth to enter into you and to change what you are and who you are. Right? So he says in verse 12, in verse 12, he writes, Solomon is writing this, but he's writing this from wisdom's perspective. And he says, I, wisdom, share a home with shrewdness, and I have knowledge and discernment, or discretion, excuse me. And another translation would say that I possess Prudence, all right, dwell with prudence. You see, the Hebrew word there for either shrewdness or prudence really carries with the idea that you have the ability to exercise solid, good, sound judgment. It could also carry the, the idea that you uh, are possess common sense. Okay, so kind of connect these two, and, and that if wisdom is dwelling with or sharing a house with shrewdness or prudence or whichever one you want to use in the context, if, if wisdom is sharing a house, it means those two are connected. Those two are always found in connection and attached to each other. So if you get wisdom, then you're going to get shrewdness. If you get wisdom, you're going to get a better ability to, to make sound, solid judgment, even common sense judgments, if you will. It will become common sense to you, things that may not have been common before, you will make those judgments. So because you've gained wisdom, you should be able to apply the knowledge that you've been given in our lives, that we should be able to take the information that we've got and apply it to our lives in our real world setting. You see, we study a book that was written over thousands and thousands of years ago. And there are so many people in this world that will look at the book that we study, whether it's the book of Proverbs or the whole book of, of the Bible, and we say, oh, this is just an ancient relic. That Yeah, it may have a few good sayings in it. It may inspire me a little bit, but it really doesn't apply to my life. And what he's telling us here is that if wisdom is true wisdom, then it's got to apply to your life. That it's got to be able to change our life. It's got to be able not just to inform us of things or inform us of ideas. It's got to be able to transform us and to be able to make better decisions and good decisions and have discretion and, and have an ability to discern what is good and what is not good. You see, the, inf the goal is never just information. It is always transformation. It is always what is in this Bible should be presented to us in such a way that is the but wait there's more this is now how you live your life this is not just words on a page these are ways to live your to live out your life and these are ways that you should ingest this word and so listen if we have been studying the book of proverbs for weeks or actually i guess months now and we're going to continue studying we've really got this choice to make are we going to study it just for information are we going to study it for wisdom? In fact, let's talk about it not just in the book of Proverbs, but let's talk about it in the whole aspect of the Bible. When you sit down to read your Bible, when you hear a sermon like this one, are you doing it just to do wisdom or knowledge and information? Or are you really seeking after wisdom? Because if you are seeking after wisdom, then when you are finished gaining wisdom, you ought to think differently. You ought to be able to judge 
better than you were when you started. You see, when you finish gaining wisdom, or as you gain wisdom, you ought to be a better judge of how to spend your money. You ought to be a better judge of the words that you use that come out of your mouth. You ought to be a better judge of how to raise your kids and, and how to direct your life and how to find purpose in your life. These things should be, you should be able to make better decisions on these things because you have gained not just knowledge and information, but you've gained wisdom. Wisdom is always found in connection, dwelling with, sharing a home with shrewdness and with sound judgment. You see, good judgment is what allows us to live out what, what Solomon says in verse 13. The good judgment that comes with wisdom is what allows us to know the difference between loving and fearing God and hating evil. As he says there in verse 13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. And for many of us, we read that passage and we're like, well, that's so simple. Like, of course we would know to fear the Lord and to hate evil. But I've got to be honest with you. We live in a time and in a world that really blurs those lines in a way that, that makes them sound almost the same. We live in a time and a world that, that can make it sound like evil is, is actually good and good is actually evil. We live in a time and a world that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah chapter 5 where he talks about those who call good evil and evil good, those who call sweet bitter and bitter sweet. And, and, and we live in this time that really doesn't know, they don't have the, the shrewdness or the discernment to know what it is that it means to fear the Lord and to hate evil. Let me give you an example. We live in a time that instead of hating arrogant pride, Man, we exalted. We lifted up. In fact, we encourage arrogant pride. That you don't have to answer to anybody. That you are your own person. That, that we called it self-esteem when I was growing up. That was the word that was shoved down us so much that we need to build your self-esteem. Maybe we built self-esteem so much that it became arrogant pride and we just kept encouraging over and over and over again. And so we live in time instead of hating arrogant pride like it says there in that verse, that man, we have encouraged it. We live in a time that instead of hating evil conduct, we promote it. We put it on billboards. We put it on TV. We promote it everywhere. Instead of hating evil conduct, we're reading about it all over the place. Don't tell me we don't have a problem distinguishing between hating evil and fearing the Lord when you can see the same commercials I see and you see the same evil conduct that I see. You can walk down the street and you hear the stories of the same evil conduct that I hear. And in fact, people are talking about it and people are encouraging it. They're not hating it. In fact, some of us may be more guilty of this last one. Instead of hating perverse speech, speech that is not fully true, speech that twists the truth, speech that, that is, is not full of, of goodness and full of value, instead of hating perverse speech, man, we blast it everywhere. We will find as many social media platforms we can and we will post it everywhere, whether it's wrong language or whether it's wrong context or whether whatever it is. Man, we will use perverse speech in the words that we use and the context we use it in and the attitude that we use it in. And maybe for some of you this isn't a thing, but for a lot of us this is. Instead of hating evil, instead of hating perverse speech, man, we are the biggest proponent of it. We are not only cheering on, we're the ones doing it. And so we need the shrewdness that comes with wisdom because we need to honestly check ourselves and say, God, am I hating pride? God, am I hating evil conduct? God, am I hating perverse speech or am I participating in those things? Because my guess is that if we're honest, some of us may be participating in those things more than we think we are. 
We may be participating in those things more than we even realize. And we didn't gain the wisdom and we didn't ask the shrewdness that came with the wisdom. God, am I ever participating in any of these things or am I not? Can I tell you a secret? There are a lot of people who have spent years studying the Bible, even memorizing parts of the Bible, and they have tons of information about the Bible. They can tell you Bible trivia. They can tell you Bible facts. They can tell you all this information about the Bible, but they didn't gain any wisdom of the Bible. You see, if we can study and memorize, you can study and memorize this book from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, as they used to say in in the church I grew up. You can do it from cover to cover, but if you don't gain better judgment, if you have studied all that time and you don't gain a better discernment, if you don't know better what it means to fear the Lord and to hate evil, and if you don't have a better uh, ability to exercise self-control after reading and studying God's Word, then you really haven't gained any wisdom. What you've got is facts and information and maybe knowledge, but you didn't gain the wisdom that the Bible promised you because wisdom is always attached. It dwells with, it lives with, it shares a home with shrewdness and sound judgment. And so if you don't can't judge any better your behavior, the behavior of others, if you can't judge any better the difference between fearing the Lord and hating evil at the end of a sermon, at the end of a Bible study you did, at the end of a quiet time, then you didn't seek after wisdom. What you sought was information and what you sought was knowledge. And don't get me wrong, those things are good to seek after, but that's not the goal. The goal is not information. It's always transformation. And when we find wisdom, we automatically find shrewdness. We automatically find this good judgment, this better judgment that comes along with it. And you see, in this good judgment isn't just for us as individuals. It really is for us as a society because it leads to the, the second companion of wisdom. It leads to um, this... Um, sorry, I'm trying to get the, the slide to pop up here. It's not working for some reason. This good judgment is going to lead us not just to good um, discretion on our part, but it's going to lead to a good government. That's the second companion of... There we go. That's the second companion of uh, wisdom is always a good government. And Solomon picks this idea up in verse 15 and 16 because where we find wisdom, we're going to find good government. And maybe not necessarily government in, in kind of the way we think of it. You may kind of make this on a smaller scale, government as being good leadership. But he really is kind of addressing government in that traditional government role. And say he says in verse 15... In verse 16, we're going to look at these verses together because they're very short. In verse 15, it says, It is by me, wisdom here talking, it is by me that kings reign and that rulers enact just laws. It goes on in verse 16, it says, By me, princes lead and do as do nobles and all righteous judges. And in those two verses, he really picks up on pretty much all the aspects, everything that we would think of in terms of government. And he does that because government needs wisdom in every aspect that it does. All right? So, for example, when we go back to the kings and the princesses in both those, the king is the ultimate ruler. He is the one who reigns. It is his job. He's kind of the administrator, if you will. For us that are in America, this would be our executive branch, if we're thinking along those lines. That 
the king and the prince, it is their job to make sure that the kingdom has all its needs met, that there's going to be enough food for the citizens, there's going to be an adequate water supply for the citizens. It's their job to make sure that they're not using up all the farm and grazing land for buildings or, or waste dumps or stuff like that. It's their job to make sure that everything is taken care of and everything is provided for. It's their job to make sure that, that all the needs are met. And it's also their responsibility to protect the kingdom which means that they would be the ones in charge of the army. And for older kings, this is where the prince part comes in, because for an older king, an older king is not going to go out and lead the army. He's going to sit at home. He's going to sit in the palace, and he's going to make decisions from there and continue and govern there. And he's going to send the prince out to be the leader of the army. And so for sometimes there's wisdom that needs to be, are we going to protect the, our, our kingdom by sitting here and, and defending an attack, are we going to protect our kingdom by going out and being on the offensive aspect of it? Are we going to protect our kingdom by going out and attacking an invader before they get to the walls of our kingdom? And so there's wisdom that needs to be in every one of these decisions. There's wisdom that needs to take place so that, that the right decisions are made at the right time. There's wisdom that needs to be part of what the king and the prince do so that the citizens of that kingdom can benefit from it. But then there's also wisdom that needs to happen in the administration of justice within that own kingdom. And this has two parts to it. The first part is to administering justice is to enact those just and fair laws. We saw that in verse 15 that the rulers enact just laws. These are laws that are good for the kingdom. These are laws that are good for the kingdom, not necessarily for all individuals, but they're good for the kingdom because they protect the people of the kingdom. In most part, they protect the, the people who cannot protect themselves, the, the innocent and the helpless, those who cannot defend themselves. So the rulers have to have the wisdom to enact these laws that may not make everybody happy. In fact, I would say that if you pass a law and it makes everybody happy, then you probably didn't need that law in the first place. In fact, what you need is a, a law that's going to make someone able to be protected. Someone who who's cannot protect themselves, you're going to guard them. That's the just part of the just laws, that, that there's fairness. And so you need wisdom to enact laws, to write laws, to, to make laws. They're going to do that. Not just make everybody happy. Not just make everybody content. Not just, hey, this is a feel-good society, so we're just going to feel good and everybody's going to do what they want to. Because if you let everybody do what they want to, then people want to take advantage of other people. People want to one-up everybody else. That's our human nature. And so you have to make these laws that protect those who are innocent, protect those who cannot protect themselves. And so he's calling out for the rulers to make these just laws. That's part of the administration. That's part of the justice that has to happen. But then there's a second part to administering justice. That once those just laws are made, you have to be able to administer justice to those that don't follow those laws. You have to be able to uh, somewhat uh, distinguish between who's following the laws and who's not following the laws. This is the, the nobles here in verse uh, 16 that, that uh, they have to judge and they have to be the all-righteous judge. They have to be able to tell um, if someone is telling the truth or not telling the truth. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where um, you're t hearing two different stories, right? And maybe two different sides of the same story, uh, but you're hearing two different stories and one person's telling you this is what happened and the other person says, no, no, this is what happened. And, and somehow you have to decide between those two what is the truth, 
Right? I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. I'm going to guess that if you've got more than one kid, you probably have been in that situation. I'm going to guess that if you've ever been uh, around more than one person at a time, then you probably have had to be in that situation. If you've got more than one friend, you've had to be in that situation where, where or you should be in that situation where you're trying to distinguish and discern truth uh, of what really is happening. And so uh, this is what happens in our justice system. This is what happens every single day in pretty much every single courtroom across our nation. That, that there are two cases that are presented. A judge sits on the bench and there are these two cases that are presented. One of them is th- th- this person standing up and telling you that's the person who did it and here's how we know they did it and here's what they did and here's how we know they did it and here's why they did it and, and they're going to lay out every piece of evidence as to why this person is guilty of what they have done and should be punished for it. And then after you hear all those facts, you as the judge are going to then turn to this person over here and they're going to respond. And they're going to say, no, I didn't do it. Here's why I didn't do it. Here's how you know I didn't do it. And if I didn't do it, I shouldn't be punished for it. All right? Or, or maybe I didn't even do it and I definitely shouldn't be punished for it. And so both of those, honestly, cannot be true at the same time. You cannot be guilty and deserve punishment and be innocent and not deserve punishment at the same time. You cannot be both of those at the same time. You are either guilty and deserve to be punished or you're not guilty and you don't deserve to be punished. They are exclusive of each other. And so what you have to do is you have to have a judge, in this case, hopefully a righteous judge, that has wisdom through discernment who can make the shrewd judgment and look at the list of facts and say, no, this is not a fact that is applicable to this case or this is not a true fact. There's something missing in this storyline or maybe it's the alibi over here. There's something missing in this alibi. You see, that's shrewdness. That's where wisdom comes in because there's discernment and there's discretion as to know seeing through the smoke screen, if you will, to see what the truth is. And for a righteous judge to make the correct decision, that's what has to happen. They have to have the wisdom to see through all the stuff in front of them to get to the truth that lies behind the story. Whether it's this person or this person, or maybe it's neither one of them. The truth is a mixture of the two. two. A righteous judge has to have the wisdom and the shrewdness to be able to do that, to discern between the falsehoods and the truth. And, and I don't want to get too political on this, but I want to share this with you. I don't know of anybody in any political party that doesn't want this type of government. Now, I'm not talking about a king or a prince. I'm talking about a good, just government. I'm talking about a government that is fair. I'm talking about a government that looks out for the best of all of its citizens. I'm talking about a government that has righteous judges who makes correct decisions. And, and honestly... We're going to define that differently. Regardless of, of where you're at in the political spectrum, we're going, to find, we're going to define all that differently. And what you think it looks like is going to be very different than maybe what I think it looks like. But I don't know of anybody in any party who doesn't want that, who doesn't want a good, fair, righteous uh, uh, government system in place. And so that's what we should be praying for. That's what we should be seeking after. And so for us who are not in government, this becomes personal for us because it's very easy to read this passage and say, oh, I'm not a king, I'm not a prince, I'm not a noble, none of that stuff, so none of that applies to me. But the truth is, all of it applies to you and applies to you in two ways. Here's the first way it applies to you is simply this, that if this is the type of government we want, if we want a government that is just, if we want a government that is fair, if we want a government that, that has wisdom, then maybe that's what we should be doing for our leaders is praying for their wisdom. You see, we spend so much time talking about 
other candidates or talking about other people's positions. We spend so much time uh, blasting them either on Facebook or Instagram or all over the place. We spend so much time going after someone instead of praying for wisdom to be part of their decisions. And maybe if we spent more time on our knees praying that God would give them wisdom, that they would be open to wisdom instead of criticizing and bashing them so much, maybe if we prayed more that they got wisdom, then we might see a change in the way our government works. Here's another way it works. In every year or every two years, depending on the election cycle, we get to choose who we want to be in our government. We get to choose from a list of candidates, whether it's a primary election or a general election, we get to decide who we want to run, or not run for office, but who we want to be in a certain office. That's our right and a privilege as an American citizen. And so maybe, just maybe, we've been looking at that list of candidates from a different perspective than what we should be looking at. You see, so many of us are going to look at candidates and we're going to qualify a candidate whether they're fit for the job or not based on a little bitty letter that's beside their name. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you are, are questioning. We're gonna, we're, the only criteria that we have for selecting a candidate for some of us, and I'm not saying this is all of us, but for some of us, the only criteria we have in selecting a candidate is whether they have an R or a D or an L or a G or, or whatever letter they have, whatever part of their affiliation is. And we're going to automatically select them because they're a member of that party. Maybe, just maybe, that's not the way we ought to look at, at elections. Maybe, just maybe... We ought to look at an election and a candidate, whether it's a primary candidate or a, a general election candidate. Maybe we ought to look at them from the perspective of, do they have wisdom from above? Instead of what letters beside their name, do they qualify for the office of government because they have this wisdom that comes from above? This wisdom that James talks about in James chapter 3, verse 17. He says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure. Then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy, good fruits without favoritism and hypocrisy. What if that became our list of criteria of people we voted for? What if we didn't settle for a candidate and we're like, you know what, he's not really pure, he's not really peace-loving, but man, he can get things done. He really knows how to run a government well. What if we didn't compromise on the first pure and then peace-loving part? What if we didn't compromise on someone who didn't show favoritism and hypocrisy? What if we said we're not going to vote for somebody unless this is the criteria that they meet? Then my guess is they're gaining wisdom from above. And my guess is that if this is the criteria of people we voted for, then the way our government works and the way our government operates may look very different from it does right now or maybe it has in the past. Because if we don't compromise and we say we're only going to vote for candidates, whether primary or general election, that this is what they believe and this is the wisdom they are demonstrating, then we will have the government we want. Because in verse 17, um, uh, in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17, Solomon writes this, I, wisdom, love those who love me, and those who search for me find me. You see, here's what I'm getting at with this political idea, that if we will love wisdom enough to make our political choices by it, if we will love wisdom enough to search for her and say, this is what we want in a government, then guess what the promise is? That we'll get it. That we will love wisdom enough, that we'll search for wisdom enough in candidates that, that we are voting for, then the promise is we'll find them. They're there. We just, not, we just need to not compromise any more of these ideas of wisdom from above for what we think we might want. Because as soon as we do that, we've fallen into the trap of we're not showing wisdom because 
We're voting in favoritism and in for hypocrisy. You see, a good government is always the result of solid biblical wisdom, biblical wisdom that comes from above. And it's not just us that need aren't in government that need to be praying for this, but we need to be voting this way as well. You see, in this good government allows for these next two uh, companions of wisdom. It allows for riches and allows for honor to take part in, both in our nation and our society. You see, these are the third companions that go hand in hand with wisdom. And Solomon, speaking for wisdom, he lists these two um, in verse 18 of the text. And he says in verse 18, With me are riches and honor, lasting wealth and righteousness. And there's this overlap of the two. Riches goes with the lasting wealth, and honor goes with the righteousness. And so if we will seek after and gain wisdom, then these are the two things that come with it. Riches and honor. Now it's kind of interesting that when we talk about riches being part of a companion for wisdom, because there is a ton of financial wisdom found within the book of Proverbs. In fact, we talked about it some already. In, in chapter 6, we talked about not taking on foolish debt. In chapter 2, we warned about the lure of easy money and how that lures people into temptation. And, and, and next few months, um, not right away, but next couple months, we're going to spend a couple weeks going through several chapters of the book of Proverbs, and we're going to spend a couple weeks just on this idea of finances, just on this idea of money. And so it's interesting because everything we've read so far in verse two, or excuse me, chapter two, chapter six, and everything we're going to read after this is really this warning about um, how you seek after money. This warning about how you shouldn't seek after money through dishonest means or how you shouldn't seek after money at the expense of someone else. How you shouldn't seek after money above everything else. And so it's kind of interesting that we see all these warnings about seeking after wealth and seeking after riches and seeking after money. But here we find this interesting point is that maybe the reason those are warnings is because we shouldn't be seeking after wealth and riches for wealth and riches purposes Maybe we should be seeking after wisdom because notice what's with wisdom, riches, lasting wealth, and honor. And so what's interesting, if you will seek wisdom, you'll end up with riches. But if you seek riches, what you'll end up with is heartache and trouble that you'll never get out of. So seek wisdom and get the riches. Solomon makes it clear that there is honestly a financial benefit in seeking after wisdom. And he makes it very clear in verse 21. He says, giving wealth as an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Right? It makes it clear that, that if you're chasing after riches, you're going to have trouble. But if you're chasing after wisdom, then financial blessings, financial um, uh, responsibility, it's going to chase after you wealth and riches are going to follow you instead of you having to chase them down because you have chased down and sought after wisdom. And if you follow and apply these biblical principles of money and finances that are given in this book, there's an economic benefit to them. There's this wisdom that you will have less debt and more savings. And I don't know anybody that doesn't want that to be part of their financial plan. But we've got to follow the wisdom that is given in this book. Now, I want to be clear that Solomon is not advocating this prosperity gospel that many people understand here. He's not saying that if you'll read your Bible, if you'll seek after the Bible, if you'll pray more, that suddenly money is going to start growing on trees or falling out of the sky for you. That's not what he's saying. He's very clear that, that what wisdom does is it gives wealth as an inheritance to those low and filling their treasuries, filling their storehouses. The storehouses is where you kept 
the grain for when the grain wasn't there. Right? So it's where you stored it up for winter. And so what the, the um, wisdom is saying is you're not going to have this huge abundance of money. I'm not promising you, Solomon's not promising you, wisdom's not promising you that all of a sudden you're going to hit the jackpot and you're going to be a multimillionaire. What he's promising that you're going to fill your treasuries or your storehouse, what he's promising you is that you're going to have your needs met. That you're never going to go to a time or a place where you go to your barn or your storehouse where you've been keeping your grain and your produce and you're never going to go to a place where that's empty because it's constantly going to be filled by wisdom. It's constantly going to be filled up by wisdom. And so uh, I want you to see that he's not talking about this, this financial, you're going to get rich quick, none of that. What you're going to do is you're going to gain wisdom and in gaining wisdom, you're going to get the financial blessings that come with it because that's where they are. Again, the goal is not just information. The goal is transformation that suddenly when we start seeking after wisdom, we're going to see the value of things differently. Suddenly the, the pure gold and the silver and the jewels, suddenly the bigger house and the next car, or the next phone, and suddenly all that stuff isn't as valuable as we thought it once was. You see, that's the wisdom. That's the shrewdness that's going to lead to the riches of following after wisdom. And if we pursue wisdom, we'll find her because that's what she said. And when we find her, we'll find the riches that go with her. But you see, we don't just find riches. We also find uh, honor as well. You see, there's honor and riches, and there's also honor and, and righteous living. That's what he points out in verse 18. If we backed up, he, he said that I with me are riches and honor, or lasting wealth and righteousness. You see, with this, there is this idea of dignity and integrity that comes with wisdom, that if we'll follow the wisdom of God, you'll find yourself, as he says in verse 20, walking a way of righteousness, walking the path of justice. And when we walk this way, it means that we align our heart, that when we walk the way of righteousness, and we align our heart and our words and our actions, we align everything with the righteous law of God, that our path aligns and our life aligns and our actions align with what God says and what God desires for us. And so when we follow wisdom, She's going to lead us on this path that aligns us with God. She's going to lead us on this path that's going to align us in, in our principles and everything with God. And to do that, it means we're going to have to get off the path we're on and get on a new path. It means we're going to have to leave some stuff behind. We're going to have to leave behind dishonesty. We're going to have to leave behind deception. We're going to have to leave behind gossip. We're going to have to leave behind envy. We're going to have to turn away from injustice. We're going to have to turn off these things and turn on to the path of righteousness. You see, what he's getting at, there's this real sense of repentance that's going on here. There's this turning from one direction that you're on, turning to a new direction and a new place. And that new place is a place of honor. And not just in the sight of other people, but really honor in the sight of God. Righteousness in the view of God. And we don't get that from ourselves. You see, the first thing wisdom is going to point you away from is your arrogance that you believe that you can be righteous on your own. What did it say about hating the arrogant eyes? One of the first thing wisdom is going to do is bring you to a place of humility that realizes you cannot, have never been, and will never be righteous on your own. The only hope you have for righteousness is to follow the advice of wisdom who's always going to point you to the Savior, always going to point you to the one that they talk about in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 when it says, He made the one, God made Christ, who did not know sin to be sin for us. Get this, so that 
we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You see, the, what wisdom is going to do is take away your arrogance and say, I can do this on my own. I can follow these laws on my own. I can be righteous before God. And God, I've earned it. I deserved it. No, what wisdom is going to do is point you away from yourself and point you to the one who's given up his life for you. The one who's given up his self and took on your sins so that you can take on his righteousness because that is the only way that we get the last and final companion of wisdom. And the last and final companion we find in this chapter is life everlasting, is eternal life itself. And we see this in the very end of the chapter. This is the final thing that goes hand in hand with wisdom. In verse 35, Solomon writes this, For the one who finds me, the one who finds wisdom, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. You see, for us to follow wisdom is for us to get our eyes off of ourselves, follow wisdom, follow her to the Savior who gave His life for you, and the one who gives us life, not just life now, but life eternal and life everlasting, life more abundant and life that is free. John 10.10, 10, the, the one who, who gave life for us to gain life from Him. You see, that's what we get when we pursue Wisdom is a picture of the gospel that brings us life because we couldn't do it ourselves. But i got to give you this warning because I wouldn't tell you the full gospel if I didn't show you the last verse of verse 36. You see, the last verse is 36, and it simply says this, But the one who misses me harms himself. All who hate me love death. You see, wisdom is, is not going to simply say, that all of you are on the path of righteousness. Wisdom is not going to say that all of you are on this path and aligned with God. Wisdom is not going to say that all of us are destined or predestined for eternal life. That's not what wisdom says. Wisdom says, I am here. And if you seek me and you search for me, you'll find me and I will get you on the path of life. But if you miss me, you will harm yourself. If you miss me because you love death, if you miss me because you love arrogant eyes, if you miss me because you love uh, pride, if you miss me because you participate and continue to participate in evil, if you miss me because you, you participate and continue to participate with your perverse speech, if you miss me means that you gave up this life that was with me because you chose death in the first place. You chose to harm yourself and you chose death and destruction. You see, wisdom doesn't say you get life automatically. It says that you get to choose between life following her and following wisdom that leads you to the Savior or you get to choose to miss it. And you get to choose death. You can either choose to repent and turn back to the one who's going to save your life and give you life or you get to stay on the path you're on. And you get to choose to follow in death and follow in destruction. But wisdom says, really, the choice is yours. Here I am. I'm calling out. I'm crying out in the streets. But you've got to make that choice for yourself. It's not a choice that I can make for you. It's not a choice that your parents can make for you or your grandparents can make for you. It's not a choice that anybody can make for you. The simple choice is you and you alone. Will you pursue wisdom that leads to a Savior that brings life? Or will we continue in the life that you're living with the arrogant eyes, the, the evil spirit, and, and the perverse speech? and will lead yourself to destruction and death. That is your choice that you have to make. And I'm praying simply this, that you have the wisdom and you seek after the wisdom to give you the good, solid, sound, shrewd judgment to make the best decision for yourself. Let's pray together.